The 64th Annual Tony Awards are sponsored by Macy's and by the Bristol-Myers Squibb Santa Fe Pharmaceuticals Partnership. All right, welcome back to My Little Tonys. We're taking you through the rest of 2010. It's going to be quick and painless. Or it's not going to be quick. (laughs) It's not going to be quick, but it'll hopefully be painless. So we have so, so much to talk about this time. Please forgive us if we miss anything. I don't think we're ever going to recover from the embarrassment of uh, totally ignoring Bandstand in 2017. (laughs) But it's, it's hard. These Tonys have a lot of stuff happening. Yeah, it's just so... In some ways, like, it feels like organizing things by years makes it easy but i feel like as we get into contemporary times just how jam-packed each season is like makes it harder to really account for everything especially since like with the earlier seasons this the shows that are kind of like the also rands have kind of faded into history whereas with these more recent ones everything is very like vivid in everyone's memory so even something like you know like the adams family which we're going to talk about which was you know totally snubbed by the tonys but has had like this sort of interesting second life it's like we can't even though we probably should not talk about it too much because it wasn't really a tony favorite we still have to talk about it so you know it just leads to a lot of chaos a lot of good chaos though I don't I really don't want to forget this. I don't want to skip over talking about the glee performance. Speaking of bad chaos, okay. <laughs> do we do we want to start with that? Uh yeah, let's do it. <laughs> now we're 10 years out from glee. I think we can all admit that it's had a net negative effect on our culture and, and our world. So do you think that this is where uh, the kind of like Leah Michelle funny girl mythology originated? Well, she had already been singing it on glee. I think before this, like, I think the song was already associated with her, but this was her being like, hey, I want to do this. Based on this performance, Barbara has nothing to worry about. Don't tell me not to fly. I've simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on my And maybe this is all in my head, but I feel like when Glee happened, there was this sort of tension where it was like Matthew Morrison and Leah Michelle were these like Broadway stars who are now breaking up out into the mainstream. And Leah especially had been, you know, notably snubbed for Spring Awakening. And now she was kind of coming back and being like, you bet you wish you hadn't uh, ignored me back then because now I'm now everybody loves me. And now I think sort of the opposite effect is happening where like nobody from the cast of Glee really ended up having any kind of breakout career. And they're sort of slinking back to where they came from. (laughs) Yeah, I also I don't think I like realized how young Matthew Morrison was. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how old was he at this i he I was 31 know. he was 31 wow i think that, that also just makes the kind of like concept of glee a little weird yeah me. especially <laughs> since all the kids were like 28 <laughs> yes <laughs> well it's funny because like i had all of this baggage with him after glee and like what a little creep he was which wasn't totally his fault it was you know the writing but then when i saw him in the light in the piazza reunion concert i was like all is forgiven <laughs> like <laughs> i remember what i saw in you in the first place he had like a very nice beard and i said i'll i'll take you back matthew morrison i do the fact that she sat on jonathan groff's lap though is, <laughs> is sweet i just wanted to get that out of the way up front because it seems like uh the kind of thing that we will forget <laughs> yeah no and i think it's important I think that the reason that this Tony's is so messed up is because of it's Glee's fault. I agree. I think the specter <laughs> of Glee hangs heavily over this whole thing. Get ready for me, love, cause I'm a comer. I simply gotta march my heart to drop my nose. But I don't know, buddy. He's gonna rain on my Should we talk about American Idiot? Yeah, let's do it. American Idiot, open April 20th, 2010. 
closed April 24th, 2011, after 422 performances. Book by Billy Joe Armstrong and Michael Mayer, music by Green Day, lyrics by Billy Joe Armstrong, directed by Michael Mayer, choreographed by Stephen Hoggett, based on Green Day's 2004 concept album of the same name. Johnny, Tunney, and Will struggle to find meaning in a post-9-11 world. When the three disgruntled men flee the constraints of their hometown for the thrills of city life, their paths are quickly estranged. When Tunney enters the armed forces, Will is called back home to attend to familial responsibilities, and Johnny's energy becomes divided by a seductive love interest and a hazardous new friendship. An energy-fueled rock opera, American Idiot, features little dialogue and instead relies on the lyrics from Green Day's groundbreaking album to execute the storyline. I'm very congested today. Um, And they were nominated for um, this was kind of a blowout snub they were nominated for best musical best scenic design and best lighting design and they won scenic design and lighting design putting them in the company of uh, Sunday in the Park with George just going off of the cards that were dealt like I've seen the scene like pictures of the scenic design and lighting design like while I've been doing research for just like good and interesting urban inspired scenic design and it always comes up and every time I see it I'm like oh this is really cool (laughs) and you know everyone talks about Michael Mayer being the big snub which you know I think he was but really I can't believe Tom Kitt didn't get even get nominated for best orchestrations because his orchestrations are like one of the best things about this show no totally yeah especially coming from you know himself having such a big hit it's kind of like funny that he's like achieved like everything that a Broadway composer could hope to achieve and then he kind of is like oh yeah and like I have a side gig too (laughs) I'm reorchestrating the songs of Green Day for Yeah, you know, you can't get uh, you can't get a big head about it. My understanding is that it kind of began with like Michael Mayer hearing this, I guess, 2004 Green Day album, American Idiot, and from that wanting to bring it into the musical theater sphere. Yes, and he decided, for better or for worse, you know, not to really create any book for it, just because American Idiot is technically a concept album. Um, They do it from beginning to end, and they also incorporate a few songs from their next album, the album that had just come out um, like a year earlier, which was also a concept album. And I think it includes four or five songs from that. I don't know. Like, I think you and I were talking a lot about how this was, you know, we both sort of came of age in this like post 9-11 era. Like, and I think we both have a lot of baggage. Maybe nostalgia. Maybe nostalgia is the wrong word because I think it's kind of like negative nostalgia that's sort of triggered by hearing this music. And mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I definitely had to kind of deprogram myself in order to be able to sort of recognize what's good about it. But I like... I was not into this album at the time. And I remember like, you know, and it's interesting seeing, like going back and seeing that it was very well received because the only dialogue I remember about it as like, you know, a young teenager at the time is everyone being like, oh, they're such sellouts. Like this is their like real mainstream, like whatever. You know, it was was playing on all the top 40 stations. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. people being like, this isn't the green day that I loved. So yeah, it's funny to see it kind of rewritten. Like it sort of felt like I was being gaslit with <laughs> all the people talking about like sort of the universal acclaim for it. Yeah, I think that that is like totally true. I literally was, I think, in eighth grade when it came out, and I remember then being like, "Green Day's sellout." Like, <laughs> but I remember like the catchy poppy songs. Like I had always you know, had like a special affinity too. I secretly liked them, but I couldn't tell anyone. Yeah, I totally agree. Like it feels so strange to like have that sort of experience and like that sort of memory of it. Well, one thing that I do remember about it that I think checks out is that it was the American Idiot album was like very like mainstream critically acclaimed and like Mm -hmm. it was kind of seen as like, Green Day, like, crossing over into, like, being political, important artists and not, like, disgruntled teenagers or 20-somethings. Well, and it was also interesting to see there's been some criticism of the musical for, like, the female characters being kind of, like, underdeveloped and, like, objectified or whatever. And it's funny because, like, at that time, 
that was the time when I was really sort of moving into like, I'm really only interested in listening to like female artists because I don't like connect to this sort of like really male rage and angst. Like it doesn't feel like it's something that has never spoken to me. So, and it was like, yeah, of course, when you put that on stage, like the female perspective is going to be underdeveloped because like, that's not the perspective that it's written from. Yeah. So it was it was interesting to see that sort of extrapolated and validated. And kind of thinking of like the contemporary albums of American Idiot, like I think that for me at least, you know, something like Panic at the Disco or definitely My Chemical Romance and even like Fallout Boy to an extent, which I think feel <laughs> like they have a more clear tie to like theater and have like a potential for a theatrical aesthetic that I feel more inclined to like totally but i think these actually do make good well they do and they don't make good theater songs like i think there's definitely like i was surprised by how much i liked the cast album and i think there's definitely like an emotional arc you can trace there's a lot of variety in the songs like not just because of the orchestrations but like the lyrics are uh they don't really tell the story in the way that you hope that they would it's you know it's all a little vague I pulled a quote from Isherwood's review of the Berkeley production. Line by line, Mr. Armstrong's lyrics, like the words to many, if not most contemporary pop songs, do not stand up to rigorous exegesis. I've never said that out loud. How do you say that? Exegesis. It often seems as if they were written on a steady diet of soda pop and Ritalin, to borrow one of his more pungent phrases, with their forced rhymes, confused grammar and imagery that is either obscure or clotted with grandiosity and angsty cliches. But when laid over the band's lushly melodic music, all those knife-sharp riffs can't disguise Green Day's potent gift for irresistible tunes. They deliver enough information to transmit the emotional contours of the story the show aims to tell. I think that's a pretty good summary of like what the music does and doesn't have to offer like I think all of the reviews were kind of like either you are won over by like sort of the energy and the emotion that you're able to sort of overlook how kind of non-existent like the story and characters are or like you can't get over that yeah but I also think that like in A Secret Life of the American Musical it's interesting because I feel like he kind of like closes off the discussion of like where we are at in contemporary Broadway with like a discussion of American Idiot. I feel like he kind of comes to it with this idea that he thought that American Idiot was better than Spring Awakening, but four years later, Michael Mayer, the gifted director who guided Spring Awakening through its development, its off-Broadway premiere, and its transfer to Broadway, was back with American Idiot. The production itself was more elaborate and imaginative than Spring Awakening had been and the design qualified as among the most ceaselessly innovative ever seen on Broadway. Yet, when Spring Awakening had won the Tony, run 859 performances, and returned a tidy profit to its investors, American Idiot, despite terrific reviews, never caught on the same way. Unlike Spring Awakening, American Idiot lacked the one thing that might have given it long-term popularity, a story about people you could care for. Though Mayer tried mightily to humanize its three protagonists, He didn't have a play to work with, only an album. And like The Who's Tommy, based on a double record album from the vinyl years, which had opened to thunderous reviews but never became a perennial, the original work had a voice but no compelling bones. Without the underlying thing that has always drawn us around the campfire, a real and engaging tale to tell. The rock musical is neither better nor worse off than the Golden Age one. Yeah, I think that pretty much nails it. And it's also like, you're, I think you're always going to be in trouble when the story is in service of the songs instead of the songs being in service of the story, especially if you're trying to tell a serious story. Like if it's something like Mamma Mia, like, it, you know, you can sort of be kind of shoehorned in and it's like, it's fine and it's fun. But it's like, if you're trying to tell a serious story, it's hard to sort of retrofit it to something that doesn't really have... It's more just vibes, you know? Yeah. Like, you can't build a show around vibes. Vibes, and it's, like, caricatures. And, like, you know, I think that in the Isherwood review, he describes it as they have the lost thread of the American fable. Like, these kinds of, like, generic, like, everyman characters. Some of the characters don't even really have names. And, you know, I would like to see, like, he has talked about working with Michael Mayer on, like, writing an original 
musical from scratch, which I would really like to see from him because he's very talented and I think he's a really great songwriter, but I don't know how I feel about this one. Well, it's interesting too, because in the review of the Berkeley production, Asherwood kind of like calls out that like there isn't much of a book and that's one of the its issues. But then like, I guess like during the transfer to Broadway, Michael Mayer and Armstrong's decision was to like have less book in it. I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like the review they got for the Broadway premiere was better than the off-Broadway, so. I don't, I mean, I also don't know if, like, adding more book is the solution, just, like, because I think it probably would have been bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, you know what I really didn't like? Because they made a documentary about it that was very much, you know, sort of like a puff piece, but it was very fun to sort of see the development process and they all kept being like this isn't Norman Rockwell like this isn't your mom's Broadway musical it's not some little fairy tale to make you feel better this is cold hard reality and it's like this isn't like the first musical to do any of these things like it's not the first musical to use rock it's not the first musical to deal with like youth disenfranchisement it's not the first musical to deal with drug addiction like nobody is breaking new ground here which is fine but like I feel like in its own way like the original production of Oklahoma was like more punk rock than this you know But if it did, like, convert people to, like, musicals who did have those preconceptions, like, I'm all for that. I think that, like, speaking of those people, I think that, like, with all that punk crossover, mainstream punk crossover of this era, there is, like, a theater kid aesthetic to it that, like, makes sense that they would like it. I think that what you were just saying, like, puts the finger on the pulse of, like, what my Green Day problem was, (laughs) even when I was 13, is that, like, I think it just, like, feels so clear that the sort of rebellion of Green Day is feels so, like, commodified and, like, mass-produced, and there's this, like, idea that American Idiot's like the first punk musical, but it's like what if you actually like really break it down and it's getting rid of like the superficial aesthetics of it, punk is just the same thing as like pop or rock, you know, it's just kind of like a subsection of it. And like, I think that like this Green Day album and this Green Day score is good pop music with like anti-authoritarian, like kind of like rebellious lyrics. Right. And I think like ultimately there is nothing less punk or like counterculture or rebellious than like a slick multi-million dollar Broadway musical. And I think these kind of shows are always going to have that problem. Like it's just baked into it and that tension is always going to be there. And it doesn't matter like how good the music is or how like young and energetic and talented the cast is. It's just like a core disconnect. Yeah, I think that it's like making a deal with the devil. And I think that Green Day kind of had to do this too, where it's like, you know, they're probably of our generation, like the most successful punk band. But, you know, like that comes at a cost of their like street credit. Because it's like thinking of something like the original production of Hedwig that, you know, was at sort of this like site-specific gritty like theater downtown that, you know, was very much off off Broadway. Is that like where a show like this really can kind of be itself? I think so, but I think it's also something about like already taking it from like a multi-platinum hit album from 10 years earlier. It's already like incredibly safe. Like I, I was thinking a lot about Hedwig because I think in some ways that is like the only true punk musical that's sort of like clawed its way into the mainstream it sort of organically. Whereas this has been mainstream from its inception. And it's also interesting how like this is sort of positioned as like a millennial point of view almost, but like Green Day or Gen X. Yeah, because I think Green Day started playing together or, you know, at some version of it uh, began in 1986. So like their vantage point is like actually of people that, you know, lived through the Reagan era and Bush the first. And I think that we probably mentioned this in the first episode, but like, I think that being like in the beginning of like the Obama era, this also feels like it came a little too late. In, uh, in one of the replacements for St. Jimmy was Davey Havoc from the band AFI. Um, which was one of my favorite punk goth rock yeah. <laughs> bands of the era. It's funny because it's like when I go back to listen to that music that I used to like be like, this is so deep, like they get it, like this is it. I'm just like, this is like good and fun pop music, but like I remember being like, I wish I could write poetry like this, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, well, while we're talking about St. Jimmy replacements, Billy Joe came in and did it a few times. Melissa Etheridge did it for a week. But Billy Joe coming in, like dropping in was really sort of what kept it running. In recent weeks, the show has played about 50% capacity. The week that Mr. Armstrong appeared in the show, American Idiot played to 93.4% capacity. So he was really bumping the box office. Yeah, the specific numbers, um, following Mr. Armstrong's departure from his latest stint as St. Jimmy, American Idiot saw Mammoth drop in its box office grosses, falling from $1.3 million to $395,275. Yeesh. I mean, I would actually, I would love to see like a member of Green <laughs> Me Day too. in this. I would go to see him in it. It's weird because like I didn't expect to get on like a negative footing with this. Like I do think that if it were playing, I would go see it. I think also like I as an adult can get kind of into it. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of like, you know, being a teenager is like, you know, you got to call everyone else a sellout. Otherwise, someone is going to call you a poser. <laughs> like, <laughs> So I think some of that baggage is really like brought up again when encountering this to be like, uh, like, no, I don't like this. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> you know, I do like it. And these songs have in the time we've been preparing for this, these songs have been stuck in my head, like incessantly, just one after the other, just replacing each other in my head nonstop. And also... The Tonys, there are like four Green Day songs on this Tonys. There are more Green Day songs than have ever been on any other Tonys because they have, I think they have three in the opening number and then they had the performance. performance. Well, it's also crazy. Like, I feel like Green Day is, for whatever reason, just like an award show darling because I think that they, before the show opened on Broadway, they had a Grammys performance and then, you know, they took up a lot of the stage time at the Tonys and then they won Best Theater Album or whatever the category, Grammy category is. <laughs> yeah, and I recommend watching that that Grammy's performance of 21 Guns because it's really good. Yeah. Also, um, Anna mentioned the documentary that was made about it, and she pointed out, I, she watched it before I did, and pointed out uh, Billy Joe doing like such a good rendition of Send in the Clowns. <laughs> You know, what's interesting is we were sort of talking about like, and I think the big snub here, like I understand why this was considered, why this was not eligible for best original score, but like I think it's so much better than anything else that was nominated that it is kind of like, it's weird that they let Tommy win and that this was not considered, you know, they only really started enforcing that rule in like the mid nineties. The concept album loophole is very interesting, like where something like Hades Town, even more recently was like allowed to compete as an original score, but like this was not it's just you know it's interesting and it's also i think that while green day did have like mainstream critical success i feel like they're not like looked on as you know i think like a band like the who or the rolling stones i don't think that at the end of the day they're that different from green day but i think that they're given a lot different treatment Yeah, and I mean, at first I was like, well, of course they wouldn't be eligible. But it's like, if Tommy was eligible, this certainly was eligible. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also another weird side note is that they kept referencing one of the producers, Tom Hulse, who is the actor who was, you know, Mozart and Amadeus. He did the voice of Quasimodo in the Hunchback, the Disney Hunchback movie. And he had quit acting in the mid-90s and was now a producer. And he helped shepherd this to Broadway. Oh, wow. And this is also, like, it seems like every musical this year has a movie in development hell. But actually, Billy Joe came out this year and was like, yeah, it's not happening. But for a long time, it was going forward at HBO, I think, and he was going to play St. Jimmy, but I think it's just, um, it seems like it's not happening. Yeah, and for the movie adaptation, Roland Jones, who is a playwright turned TV writer, was doctoring the book or like beefing up the screenplay. And there was like an article about the movie being like, Green Day gives update on surreal, offensive American idiot movie. And it's like, <laughs> you don't have to like try to make it, I don't know. I think that that was kind of like a turnoff too. It's not your mama's musical movie. (laughs) Take her to see La La Land. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Do we have anything else? I think we kind of, I think, I think we did it. That's it. Yeah, I don't have anything specific to say about the performance. It was a good performance. I feel like though, like, it's very much the performance that I would expect it to be. Calling out to idiot America.
Let's keep it moving then. Next up, we have Fela. Open November 23rd, 2009. Closed January 2nd, 2011 after 463 performances. <laughs> Based on the life of Fela Kuti. Book by Jim Lewis and Bill T. Jones. Music by Fela Kuti. Lyrics by Fela Kuti. Conceived by Bill T. Jones, Jim Lewis, and Stephen Handel. And it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Actor in a Musical for Sar and Gaja, Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Lilius White, Best Choreography, Best Direction, Best Orchestrations, Best Scenic Design, Best Costume Design, Best Lighting Design, and Best Sound Design. And it won Choreography, Costume Design, and Sound Design. And it was directed and choreographed by Bill T. Jones. The synopsis is a spectacularly inspiring and triumphant tale of courage, passion, and love. Fela is based on the life of Fela Kuti, who created Afrobeat, a blend of jazz, funk, and African rhythm and harmonies, and mixed these sensual, eclectic rhythms with simple but powerful lyrics that openly assailed Nigeria's corrupt and oppressive dictatorships. Featuring many of Fela Kuti's most captivating songs, all under Bill T. Jones's visionary staging, Fela reveals Kuti's life as an artist and human rights activist and celebrates his pioneering music in what has been hailed as one of the most exciting, exhilarating, and vital stage experiences in recent memory. I think that that uh, synopsis was taken from like the touring, the tours uh, <laughs> website. But I, also, I honestly kind of agree. I think that in my version of me deciding what would win best musical this year, this might have been my selection. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, the Tonys is, you know, they're kind of allergic to something that is not like a traditional book musical a lot of the time i think that that's true i also think that like while it's really easy for me to see the sort of heritage of broadway and even like green day's music style you know i think that this feels like a very different use of words and music and i think it's ultimately like really interesting but like i think that like sort of this like inherent poetry that we see in like western popular music feels really absent from this yeah and an interesting side note um speaking of like best original score eligibility is that after it was ruled not eligible the producer was like well it probably should be because like even though these songs have existed like this music is not something that like the majority of american audiences are familiar with but then the tonys were like well you didn't get your petition in in time so we can't consider it. So, you know, and I think that is something worth uh, worth considering. So if they had gotten it in in time, Fela could have been your best original score winner. And I think both this and American Idiot are more worthy than Memphis. Yeah. Well, if Britney Spears's uh, jukebox musical comes to Broadway, she better we better start getting all the paperwork ready now. <laughs> that petition will be a little harder to, uh, to, <laughs> to justify. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that actually brings up a really interesting point is that through this production, uh, there were a few different pieces that I saw that sort of referenced the fact that like a lot of Fela's recordings had been reissued and like there was like a new interest in his body of work. Well, and the interesting thing is that the idea behind it was this uh, white Jewish commodities trader, Stephen (laughs) Hendel, who was like a big music fan. But they said, so he was a big music fan, so I expected it to be like, he loved Fela for for his whole life. But he was like, one day I was just scrolling through music on Amazon.com and I saw this name I didn't recognize. And like, I started listening to it and I loved it. His wife was like, hey, you know, maybe you should become a producer and like turn this into a show. And he basically like, it's... It's kind of like Eight Misbehaving, actually, where he kind of like gathered up the team and was like, I want you to to bring this music to Broadway. Bill T. Jones's quote is, this was one man's dream, Stephen Hendel, a very sweet man who loved Fela's music and was determined it would be on Broadway, Jones said. It was because of that one man's dream and love, something that I really appreciate and love and something that I knew Fela stands for. It's interesting that the Spring Awakening team has sort of splintered into uh, these two musicals this year because uh, Bill T. Jones had just won for choreographing Spring Awakening a couple years earlier. But yeah, so he, you know, was a very famous choreographer. Was this his first Broadway directing credit? Yes. So Spring Awakening was his first trip to Broadway, and Fela was his first his first opportunity doing, you know, direction, book, conceived, choreographing. But, you know, he had a very sort of long and, and legendary career before this. He's a cool person to pick to do something like this. Mm-hmm. Working, you know, since the 1970s, having like a very sort of iconic dance company. Yeah, and I guess like sort of, I feel like he and Michael Mayer both are get to show off their flexes in like <laughs> the perfect 
post Spring Awakening project kind of found both of them. Yeah. So yeah, so this opened off Broadway. I think it opened at 37 Arts, which is where In the Heights also um, originated. Got raves. It was selling out. Like lots of celebrities were um, involved when they brought it to Broadway. Um, you know, Will and Jada and Beyonce and Jay-Z all produced it. There was like a real star power element behind the scenes. Yeah. And it's so funny because like they were trying to pick a date for the opening on Broadway. But since they all had such like crazy schedules, there was like all this press about like finding the date that like they could all be there and i think that will eventually like wasn't there on opening you know they had this very successful off-broadway run but then they were sort of like looking for a way to we're gonna have to sell like twice as many seats on broadway like how are we gonna do it and they i think the solution kind of was like to get big name producers involved so basically the reviewers were all like it has incredible energy and like you know passion and sort of this euphoric experience but the downside is it sort of glosses over kind of the more unsavory parts of Fela's real life I don't know how much we want to go into his biography but basically the show starts with him after like the government has like raided his compound and they injured his mother so badly that she ended up dying several months later and then so and then I think the show sort of moves back and forth through time and she sort of appears as this kind of like goddess figure speaking to him throughout the show. Yeah, I think that like I didn't understand that there was like this unsavory aspect to his character. Like I think that one of the major complicated things was that he had 27 wives i guess <laughs> yeah the um <laughs> that one article that you found that was like you know 10 things to know about Fela. that was like it was like number six in 1960 Fela married the first of 27 wives he drew many from his pool of dancers and backup singers the star explained his polygamy by saying a man goes for many women in the first place Seven. In the 70s, Fela divorced 12 of the wives. By the mid-80s, he got rid of the remaining 15. His explanation? Marriage brings jealousy and selfishness. Yeah, and it's sort of, it's interesting because there's this, like, whole profile on, like, how does the show deal with the wives problem. I think that there was, like, a lot of, like, discourse around, like, what the wives aren't. Like, they're not go-go dancers, they're not prostitutes, they're not this, they're not that. But, like, I still think it's a little confusing on, like, what they are. Yeah, and there was this article, I think this was the one in Al Jazeera, that was kind of like, you know, is it not hypocritical, but it's sort of ironic that someone's so countercultural. It, it is also sort of like American Idiot, that, like, someone who is so controversial, so into the counterculture, gets, like, the Broadway musical treatment. There are people who, when they heard we were going to make a musical about him, were very upset, Mr. Jones recalled, because Fela's underground and Broadway's mainstream. Fela was a complex, willful, and often contradictory man. I probably wouldn't get along with him, Mr. Jones said with a laugh. Fela was born into a privileged family. His father was an Anglican priest, and his mother was a feminist leader. Yet he was also a hedonistic rock star, flaunting big marijuana splits and his 27 wives, his queens. Despite his education, he adopted the voice of the poor, singing in a lower-class pigeon of English and tribal languages, and insisting he was promoting an authentic African culture to defy a lingering colonial mentality. Although Fela was shaped by strong women, notably his mother, he claimed that true African women should be submissive. While Fela is largely celebratory, it also notes its hero's inconsistencies. It's, it's complicated, and we don't have the answers. But I do, I do regret missing it. Yeah, well, and w on that note, a really kind of interesting thing happened where in the summer of 2012, it came back to Broadway, uh, the touring production came back to Broadway for, I guess, four weeks. You know, the musical star, Star Umgaja, like, continued to stay with the project, and he pretty much got universal praise as, like, really bringing Fela to life. He, yeah, he did tour with it, which is unusual. I think he only did five performances a week, which just goes to show how physically demanding that role is. Yeah. This show is a faithful to Fela's character, said Ricky Stein, who was Fela's manager for 15 years, and who recalls a tornado of a man who liked to play, eat, have sex, and get high. But he was also sweet. He loved humanity. He was principled. He was a lot of fun to be around. He'd show up in the lobby of a five-star hotel wearing nothing but a pair of Speedos. <laughs> Isherwood gave it a very interesting review that sort of departed from the other almost universal praise where he he said the presentation of African culture as a feast of exotic pageantry has the potential at least to reinforce stereotypes of African people as primitive and unsophisticated, albeit endowed with astounding aptitudes for song and dance. Although some of the dancers have individual moments, none are given individual voices. Sometimes they simply drape the stage like gaudy decor. Context is key here, too. Would I feel any discomfort if I were attending an African dance recital at Dance Theater Workshop? Probably not. 
An air of exuberant commercialism surrounds Broadway productions. You can buy $20 Fela programs and t-shirts at the theater that can sometimes add a surface level of crassness to shows that are intrinsically free from it. Fine art can be cheapened by the need to compete in a commercial marketplace. The carnivalesque atmosphere at Fela is more pronounced on Broadway than it was in the show's earlier run off-Broadway. The theater is bedecked in vibrantly colored panels of corrugated metal and African gewgaws. The intention is to immerse the audience in a sense of being at the shrine, but is unintentionally a little like being in a Disneyland version of Africa. Africa. And this parade of African experience is being staged for Broadway audiences who are still largely white, middle-aged, and middle-class. Many will have had little exposure to African culture, and some may come away with the impression that the partying played a larger role in the life of the people surrounding Fela than the grim political battles and the economic hardship. So, you know, and he sort of prefaces this by being like, I'm a white guy, and so, like, anything I have to say like, it's okay to discard that because I'm not necessarily the authority on this subject. But I do feel like, you know, bringing in the commercialism element is something maybe worth bringing up. There was actually a dancer responded to that piece of his with a letter to the editor saying, Fela strikes a unique model of tension between the driven soul that devised Afrobeat and the physicality that it embodies. It is a vivid portrayal of Fela's journey. The choreographer Bill T. Jones, who directed the musical, gives us a seething palette of passionate and empowered movement, the likes of which has rarely, rarely been seen on Broadway. This palette is inexorably linked to the political narrative that was motor for Fela's creative life. Finally, a musical without the tiresome, jazzy pabulum that usually passes for dance. Mr. Jones reaches for an authenticity of experience through motion, text, and visual collage. And it is about time we get to experience more of that on stage and up close in the aisles. Racially demeaning, Mr. Isherwood views movement as a sign and not as an overpowering animal experience. Open up or step back. And that was written by Stephen Petronio. Yeah, and I think that's a, a fair rebuttal. Yeah, I didn't expect this season necessarily to be the one where it like really is the Broadway machine, like, does it inherently make art crass? <laughs> and I think the answer is kind of yes, but it's like, that's why we love it, you know? Yeah, I think that, like, with this season, there's so much commodification of so many different sorts of things that it really does uh, encourage one to ask that question. <laughs> Everybody say yeah, yeah. Welcome to the shrine. Okay, so we have our last Best Musical nominee, Million Dollar Quartet. Million Dollar Quartet opened on April 11th, 2010 and closed on June 12th, 2011 after 489 performances. It featured a book by Colin Escott and Floyd Muttrux, Muttrux, Muttrux. You know, it's a one of those jukebox musicals that featured a bunch of songs by people whose names might not ring a bell, but some of the songs <laughs> include Hound Dog, Ghost Riders in the Sky, See You Later Alligator, and a whole lot of shaking going on. Um, it was directed by Eric Schaefer and conceived by Floyd Muttrux. And it was nominated for three Tonys, Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, and Best Featured Actor in a Musical uh, for Levi Kreese. And Levi Kreese won Best Featured Actor in a Musical. On December 4th, 1956, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and Elvis Presley all found themselves at Sun Records in Memphis, Tennessee, and proceeded to record a lengthy jam album. I think it's legendary. What did I say? You said lengthy. <laughs> <laughs> and proceeded to record a legendary jam album. Million Dollar Quartet recounts that single night with the meaningful and humorous story of five men's journeys through the music business. So yeah, I mean, this is basically just rockabilly Jersey Boys. There's not too much to say about it. It is, I, I do think that there's a benefit that it is like on such a small scale, like it kind of takes place in, you know, quote unquote real time. Like it's not like, and this is the full life of all of these guys, you know, it's just a sort of this one 
one afternoon, one evening in the life, which I think is kind of the way to do it. It's kind of funny because uh, the winning performance was uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, who was at this, this time the only one of the original quartet who was still living. Um, mm-hmm. And he kind of like comes up on stage and uh, not at the Tonys, but, um, you know, he performs with them at a performance. And, and like Jersey Boys before, it instead of closing, closing, it moved off Broadway. I think that's smart. Yeah. And all the reviews are like, you know, the performers sort of elevated above your standard kind of like lounge act impersonators. But listening to the cast album, I was like, why would you listen to this instead of the real recordings? I did like Elizabeth Stanley doing Fever, but all yeah. of the other she wasn't even playing a real person. They were like, we need a, a woman in here. She is a made-up character. This is an excerpt from a bad review in the New York Post uh, by Elizabeth Vincentelli. The problem is that these four stars are played by journeymen. Only Levi Kreese as Jerry Lee Lewis projects any kind of energy. Lance Guest displays an impressive baritone as Cash, but he trips on half his spoken lines. Robert Britton Lyons' Carl Perkins barely registers, even though the character has a chip on his shoulder that could have been made good for drama, if you know the show had been remotely interested in drama. Worst of all, Eddie Clendenning's Elvis is completely neutered. It's impossible to picture this guy driving millions of women crazy. Even the girlfriend who accompanies him to the studio, Diane, played by Elizabeth Stanley, seems vaguely bored. I mean, I thought like I thought all both the performances, both in the opening number and the the real performance were, you know, enjoyable enough. Like I like all that music. Mm-hmm. It's I can imagine having a couple cocktails and having a real good time at Million Dollar Quartet. Yeah, it's kind of funny, especially after um, All Shook Up, like, really bombed, like, a few years before. They were like, well, let's, like, really try to do this the way it's meant to be done. All Shook Up had, like, a fake plot, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't talk about it too much in the 2005 episode, but since then, I've really um, come to be obsessed with the uh, arrangement of Can't Help Falling in Love that they do in that show. It's really, really good. So it goes, some things are meant to be. Not to derail the conversation of this musical, but um, yeah, if you haven't heard that, (laughs) go listen to that. It's, you know, I think because like these arrangements for this are like exactly the same as the original. As far as I could hear, I'm not like an expert, but I couldn't hear any real attempts to make them theatrical because it's not. It's just them like performing the songs. This also kind of like adds to the weird cosmos of this season. Like everything is just like kind of vaguely connected and variations on one another. Okay, should we move <laughs> should yeah. we move on? I don't think we need to talk any more about this. So we have Four more musicals that received at least one nomination. Should we just do them all and then kind of do bites about each one? Do we want to split them up? I feel like if we split them up, it's going to take us too long. Yeah, let's do them. try to do them all at once. So the other musicals were The Addams Family, which opened April 8th, 2010, closed December 31st, 2011, after 722 performances, which was nominated for Best Score and Best Featured Actor in a Musical for Kevin Chamberlain. Next up, we had Everyday Rapture, which opened April 29th, 2010, closed July 11th, 2010, after 85 performances, which was nominated for Best Book of a Musical and Best Actress in a Musical for Sherry Renee Scott. Then we have Sondheim on Sondheim, Opened April 22nd, 2010, closed July 27th, 2010, after 76 performances, nominated for Best Featured Actress for Barbara Cook and Best Sound Design. And then Come Fly Away, opened March 25th, 2010, closed September 5th, 2010, after 188 performances, nominated for Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Corinne Plantadit, and nominated for Best Choreography for Twyla Tharp. 
I just wrote Twyla Tharp, <laughs> but I, I think it was choreography. So yeah, so not a win among them, but still worth mentioning. For the Adams family, first of all, I was, you know, there's a lot of parallels with Susical. The main one. Including Kevin Chamberlain. (laughs) Kevin Chamberlain (laughs) being the only one. I mean, he's extremely likable. Like, I understand why he was able to sort of rise from the wreckage of both of those shows. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they had these sort of, you know, tortured development. Uh, phases where it started as trying to be this kind of unique and and off-kilter story, which like the source material is. And, um, you know, it just sort of got lost along the way. It ended up running for two years or a year and a half. two years. Yeah. Compared to the shows that did get Best Musical nominations, this ended up running quite a bit longer. Yeah. And I think the one of the most notable things about this, there was actually a piece from a few weeks ago um, that was sort of an oral history talking about how it was very poorly received. Um, it still ended up running. And then after it closed, they like revised it a lot. And now it's extremely popular, especially in high schools. It's been for the past five years, I think they said it's been the number one, four out of five of the last five years, it was the most produced show in high schools, and the other year was the second most. Based on the Jimmies, you know, there's Gomez's and Wednesdays all over the place. I also think that, like, it's kind of amazing to see that I feel like Beetlejuice did learn the lessons from this. It learned them creatively, but it did not have the run to match. Yeah. Which it was not its fault, but... No. Even still, though... I think it's like a kind of a complicated thing because I think one thing that's like made very clear and I think is just like a legal issue is that um, this is like very much based on the Charles Adams cartoons and not on any, you know, the 60s TV show that kind of brought it into the pop culture circuit and I guess in a bigger sense and, uh, you know, the movies from the 90s. With that being said, it's like, it still is. I don't know. And it's sort of, you know, it borrowed, the plot was just sort of a combination of Lacage and you can't take it with you. You know, people sort of felt that it it didn't really capture the tone of, of the cartoons or of the movie. But I did think it was very, uh, Nathan and BB were very uh, good sports to show up and present best actor and best actress in a musical after being snubbed. So we were in the neighborhood, we looked up, saw the marquee, and realized we'd totally forgotten about the Tony Awards. (laughs) Or as we call it at my house, Passover. Gee, you know, maybe we could lend a hand, and here we are. We were in such a rush, I didn't get to see what we were presenting. Oh, right, me neither. What's that? Oh. Huh. What? Best actor and actress in a musical. What? Best actor and actress in a musical. Holy crap, this isn't going to be pretty. No, Nathan. Being in the theater is not about winning awards. I'll say. Or being nominated. (laughs) It's about being part of the community and the work. You really believe that? Yes, yes I do. Want a drink? Maybe later. They are my dream threesome. (laughs) There were a lot of really good dream threesomes this year. So yeah, I think we can can move on from that. The Obamas Uh, went to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope they had their dream foursome. (laughs) So... Everyday Rapture, I actually ended up seeing it. It ended up being a last-minute replacement for Roundabout when um, Megan Mullally was going to star in Lips Together, Teeth Apart, but there was some sort of drama. I think she was in some conflict with the director, so um, Everyday Rapture had been playing off-Broadway, and I think they were like, well, this is ready. Just, like, get it in here. You know, it's fun. It's like some people maybe don't think... I found that Sherry Renee Scott is, like, very strangely divisive. Like, some people really hate her, but I've... I always... uh, I'm a fan. Also, I feel like recently I've been hearing people praise her work more vocally than maybe they have in the past. Well, I'm ready for a Sherry Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> I really wish I had gone to see her and Norbert Leo Butz's little, uh, what is it called, 54 Below shows where they talk about their weird little, like, on again, off again, like, <laughs> flirtation, you know, relationship because they have a really interesting history. Yeah, it was fun. You know, future Tony winner um, Lindsay Mendez is one of her backup singers, and you can see them in the opening number. Yeah, it kind of feels like they have got, had already gotten rid of the short-lived best theatrical event, Tony, so... I mean, and I think both, both... Like, I thought the book was very 
very funny and and creative and clever so i'm glad that it got in there and i'm glad she got a yeah she got a nomination i think they were both deserved i don't know if they were actually i thought she was better than Catherine zeta jones but that would have definitely been like a an out of left field win don't be afraid to come up the ladders in the room where we can't see Yeah, the year before was the last year that they did a Best Theatrical Event, Tony. And I feel like Sondheim on Sondheim maybe would have also qualified as a theatrical event. I don't know. I think it was just kind of a strange project. And you know, it's weird. Like, like I obviously, I, I love Sondheim. If you've gotten this far, you know I love Sondheim. But I, for some reason, I just like am not always interested in seeing his songs like performed out of context. Even with this cast, I like, you know, I didn't end up seeing it. You know, there wasn't like a huge window of time to see it. I regret it. Like, I regret not seeing Barbara Cook, but I'm kind of like, you know, I'm more interested in seeing his songs like in the context of his shows than sort of like a tribute concert. So it won Outstanding Musical Review at the Drama Desks that year. But I think that that you bring up like an interesting and good point where it's like, for someone whose songs so much depend on the context of the shows, like it's amazing how many variations of like Sondheim review shows have been created. Yeah, I saw a very cute um, production of Side by No Side by Side by Sondheim. Is that the one that's only like three or four people? Yeah, I saw one that in um, at the Signature Theater in DC, and I thought it was very cute. But it's like I don't know if I would pay Broadway prices. It also just like feels like something that lends itself to wanting to be intimate. Yeah. Rather than, you know, be in like a, you know, and not all Broadway theaters are big and cavernous, but. Take away my Sondheim fan card if you want. This is my truth and I'm living it. I saw a little night music that season. That's That was my Sondheim on Sondheim. <laughs> so then we also had Come Fly Away, which is Frank Sinatra musical directed and choreographed by Twyla Tharp. Kind of, you know, she had been doing this with like moving out. It was just like her next take on a legendary. And I think that she had done a Bob Dylan one in between, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, this was just kind flopped. of like her thing now. <laughs> but the, the dancing that they did at the performance was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So they didn't, I, I believe moving out had like a, Billy Joel impersonator sort of like singing the songs live but this wisely used like isolated you know master vocals of Frank Sinatra with a live band which I think is the way to do it mm-hmm. you know I don't think we have time to go into it but there was sort of a back and forth between um, Isherwood and the chief dance critic Alistair McCauley sort of going back and forth about it um, that's worth looking up if you want to sort of see it broken down a little more but I don't think we need to go into it. Gonna dance, gonna fly. Before my numbers up, I'm gonna fill my cup. I'm gonna live, 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 live. Until I... You know, I guess as we're kind of uh, wrapping up our musical coverage from this season, like, if you think that this is already chaotic, something that I just reminded myself by looking back at my notes, Spider-Man was also supposed to open this season. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) Because, like, part of uh, the Addams Family, they were, like, kind of expecting to be, like, the second banana show to Spider-Man that season, but how everything worked and what else was being offered on the stage that year, they kind of became this reluctant, or I guess not reluctant, but unexpected hit, or hit in quotation marks. <laughs> Let's move on to Tim's Play Corner. Woo! So, um, you know, the big things to talk about Tony Wynn-wise, I think, will be Red and Fences. Red opened on April 1st, 2010, and closed June 27th, 2010, after 101 performances Um, It was written by John Logan and directed by Michael Grandage. And the synopsis is Josh Logan's tout visceral two-hander Red features artist Mark Rothko at the height of his career. 
Viewed through the lens of his youthful new assistant, Ken, we witness Rothko at the pinnacle of his creativity, but struggling through the creation of a series of large paintings, commissioned as a series intended to be featured in New York's brand new Four Seasons restaurant. As Ken and Rothko paint, they challenge each other to ask big questions about art, what it takes to create it and what its role should be in the world. Set in the 1950s and based on a series of real events, Red takes a compelling look at the ever-changing relationship between an artist and his creations. And it was nominated for Best Play, uh, Best Actor in a Play for Alfred Molina, Best Featured Actor in a Play for Eddie Redmayne, Best Direction of a Play, Best Scenic Design of a Play, Best Lighting Design of a Play, and Best Sound Design of a Play. And it won all six of those with the exception of Best Actor in a Play. This is something that I've never seen, but uh, had the opportunity to listen to a recording of um, from LA Theater Works. And I think that I was sort of surprised at how funny and maybe charming it was. Actually, uh, the one thing that it kind of uh, made me think of is Sunday in the Park with George. In its sort of dissection and like opening up of the mind of an artist and I think that like in the same way that Sunday in the Park with George doesn't feel like oversimplifies like or like I guess mystifies like what what's going on in an artist's mind I feel like this kind of in a similar way deals with that from the New York Times review this may suggest an all too familiar Broadway recipe for flattering middle brows into feeling highbrow allowing audience members to signal their sophistication with knowing laughs at intellectual references. Mr. Logan doesn't entirely avoid the expected conventions of fictional works about real and usually anguished artists, an often embarrassing genre. But as much as any stage work I can think of, Red captures the dynamic relationship between an artist and his creations. Only Sunday in the Park with George comes to mind as being similarly successful. It's one thing to say, or to have a character say, that an artist regards his paintings as his children, but it's another to be able to look at that artist looking at his paintings, as Mr. Mol- Mr. Molina's Rothko does, with a fraught fatherly anxiety and wonder. Um, so yeah, I thought that was nice. I mean, and I also think that like that doesn't maybe necessarily capture the humor that's at play in this play. And I think that, like, there are certain plays that don't lend themselves to, like, listening to a professional audio recording, but this is actually... You know, I think that this is very similar in my mind to, like, A Doll's House Part 2 in two ways, where, like, I do think that there is these cultural references made that, like, a Broadway audience, like, loves to, like, not be able to nod their heads about. But I also think they're, like, very conversational in, like, a very fun way. And not only is there the LA Theatre Works audio recording, but also currently on um, PBS, on the Great Performances website, there is a full filmed production of it um, with Alfred Molina. Eddie Redmayne is not in it, but um, it's, I believe it's the original production. So that's uh, available to check out if I think it's free. I think during the t- this, these times. <laughs> during these times. So yeah, if you're looking for something new to watch, um, that is out there. If you're curious what swept, swept everyone away in 2010. Yeah, it's kind of funny because it's such a slight sort of show. It's like funny that it like swept everyone off their feet because it's you know it feels really slight in a way i mean i feel like these shows like these plays that do that are never necessarily like huge in scale except you know maybe something like angels in america but um i feel like those are more the exception than the rule but i thought in general the way that they i thought they gave good highlight to the plays like i really liked that they had the stars of the plays introduce them like i thought for shows like especially next fall I thought that introduction was so cute and like really made me interested in a play that I really didn't know anything about Jeffrey Noft's next fall is a love story about two people of different faiths uh, two uh, men of different faiths two men right uh, Luke and Adam a believer and a non-believer who are together for five years when a terrible accident forces them to grapple with some of the more significant issues our country faces like hospital visitation rights in the increasingly polarized world in which we live and, and it's really funny Yes. But it's important. Dude, you're making it sound like (laughs) C-SPAN. Okay, you do it. Next Fall tells the uproariously hilarious tale of love between an atheist and a Christian and the friends and family who gather around after the younger, hotter one is hospitalized. 
and I liked that they did kind of like the for like the montage they did it sort of over like a beat like it was almost edited like a there was like a YouTube influence in there I felt like <laughs> you're white you're gay though right you're overwhelming my sensory system I'm trying the best I can to explain it to you understanding what you to another it go to you to you to peace to peace to love to love I love you of me of me tell me you love me Oh, I also like this is just this is in the same place in my notes. This doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I forgot that Sean Hayes introduced Bernadette Peters as the BP that isn't ruining the planet. Oh, and also one more thing about Bernadette Peters. I also have the way that she I don't remember how she says it, but I just wrote the way that she says the musical categories is so Bernie. <laughs> Afrobeat, rock and roll, rhythm and blues, and punk. Speaking of Will and Grace, like I think we talk a lot about the connection between like sitcoms and contemporary plays, but Tracy Letts' Superior Donuts actually was turned into a sitcom. It was kind of like written as this like love letter to like Norman Lear sitcoms of the 70s. So yeah, no, that's actually really funny. Yeah, so the other big winner was The Revival of Fences. So it was nominated for Best Revival of a Play, Best Leading Actor in a Play for Denzel Washington, Best Leading Actress in a Play for Viola Davis, Best Featured Actor in a Play for Stephen McKinley Henderson, Best Direction of a Play, Best Original Score, Best Scenic Design, Best Costume Design, Best Lighting Design, Best Sound Design, and it won Revival, Leading Actor, and Leading Actress. I believe I believe only Viola won the Oscar for the film adaptation, which um, in all reports that I have read, like it's a, just a very faithful adaptation of the stage play. So I'm actually I've never seen it. So I'm excited to watch it. So really, if you want to relive all of the important plays of 2010, <laughs> they're all on screen. They're out there for you. And I guess last but not least, play wise in the next room or the vibrator play, uh, by Sarah Rule. I, this was the only show that I saw actually saw this season, and it's kind of funny because I didn't realize that it was such a short run. Um, it opened on November 19th, 2009, closed on January 10th, 2010, after only 60 performances. Um, it was written by Sarah Rule and directed by Les Waters. And yeah, it was nominated for Best Play, Best Featured Actress in a Play for Maria uh, Dizia and Best Costume Design of a Play. But notable snubs are uh, Michael Severus and uh, Laura Benanti, who um, I thought were just wonderful in it. Um, they always are. And I think that like if anyone is lo- looking for like a window into like contemporary theater and like just want to dip their toe into like reading a contemporary play i feel like sarah roll is kind of like the perfect place to start in like a lot of the overall coverage of this season like i feel like people are like and the experimental sarah rule makes her broadway debut and like i feel like this is probably like her one of her most grounded plays and kind of like surprising that it didn't have more of a more legs to it i wonder if it's if it gets done a lot you know, elsewhere. I mean, it's kind of a perfect college theater play because there's like a very um, gender studies sort of like tie into it. Yeah, you know, it's historical. It's like a little irreverent. You got some juicy roles. So there's also a new David Mamet play about race, which we do not need to say anything about at all. Um, Yeah, he also (laughs) wrote an op-ed to the New York Times. And I think that this is like kind of, it feels like a Batman like Genesis he was like a very vocal Obama uh, opponent and I think has really shown his true colors over the past 10 years. He sucks so much. <laughs> I, I said I said it was about race. It's also literally called race. <laughs> that's, that's how I know what it's about. Yeah, I don't think it's good. And like, I think he has, a, there's a lot of bad takes. Well, well, we can just keep moving right along. Should we do this and that? Yeah. All of my Tony notes are like people's names with exclamation points. I know. Like, <laughs> It's like, what on earth did I mean? Should we talk about our dream threesomes? Yes. Well, I do. I have a nightmare threesome. You know, they didn't do a lot of unconventional pairs this season, which made it hard because like, I think my nightmare threesome would be the Fraser brothers who <laughs> presented together. My dream lunch date would be Vanessa Redgrave and Jan Maxwell. <laughs> but like they had a lot of people like, you know, Laura Benanti and Michael Cerveris, I think are top of top of the pile. 
but it feels like cheating because like everyone was with their partners well and uh i feel like daniel radcliffe and kate hudson is like a very <laughs> katie holmes katie holmes yeah that's what i meant kate hudson would be even more unwelcome <laughs> yeah that one would be, would be the most chaotic but like you know denzel and viola obviously mm-hmm. um i think the the pair that is most likely to have actually had a threesome in real life would be will and jada after a few tonys where there was really no one to choose from this one was truly an embarrassment of riches yeah something random antonia banderas presented something and sean hayes he took a pot shot at the nine movie first of all which uh, i thought was funny but they also mentioned that he was planning on coming with a production of zorba oh yeah which which i guess never happened but that would have been uh, very fun yeah our next presenter is an actor with uncanny instincts he got a tony nomination for the broadway production of nine and avoided the film version of nine Return- <laughs> returning soon as zorba the greek please welcome antonio banderas okay wow so next up we have our season finale it's hot. like I never know what to call our I, like I've been calling them cycles because like it's confusing when we're talking about Broadway seasons yeah. to be like I know podcasts are normally called seasons but let us know which one you prefer <laughs> which one makes more sense to you I feel like every time I say it to someone I have to describe what how they're like what do you mean by cycle and then I just have to explain what we do <laughs> yeah there's no real good way to um refer to it but we're coming up in our last year in this decade rotation we teased it a little bit people had some guesses it's 1982, baby. Woo. So that's Dreamgirls versus Nine. A very, very exciting showdown. Yeah, we're nervous. We're excited. We want to try to do it justice. And then after that, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you will get a very special full-length bonus episode that will be revealed in time. Yes. I forgot about that also being the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat year. Yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> so until then, you can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mylittletonies. Uh, you can subscribe on Patreon, patreon.com slash mylittletonies. And I think that's it. Yeah. See you later. Bye. Bye.